Welcome to the Leadership Drives Podcast. Now here's your host, Mylena Sutton. Let's pick up where we left off with Warden Taylor. Here's part two of our interview. So tell me a little bit about this house. <clears throat> because um, when you said come back, I'm thinking come back. He wasn't brought back as an arrested. He came back. Mm-hmm. So tell me about this house. So one of the things that we realized very early on is that one of the huge barriers is homelessness. Uh, you might have a house and somewhere to stay when you first were arrested, but maybe while you were incarcerated, you lost your house or you've burned so many bridges that you no longer have a place to go. And one of the questions we ask upon booking is, are you homeless or do you do you have stable housing? And sometimes people are very honest and say, no, I don't. Uh, we go back at it during classification. Uh, so there's three areas where we definitely ask the question, are you homeless? Do you need housing? Uh, because we want to identify those individuals right away. Uh, so at times, individuals come into the correctional facility and when they're ready to be released, they do not have anywhere to go. And they don't want to go to a shelter. But uh, if they have to, they will, but they really don't. And we identify that as a, a need and decided that we can fund as a pilot through a pilot program to see how successful or to see or ver- and co- confirm what we thought we knew, which was there's a need. Mm-hmm. And so we piloted this uh, house where we're working with a vendor and the vendor rents us the house with uh, six beds in there and the house is completely under the Department of Corrections, and it's a home. It's, it's a home. It has a kitchen, a living room, three bedrooms, and the individuals go there upon release. They don't have to stay. They're free. Mm-hmm. But if you need a home and you need a bed tonight, here you are. You don't have to worry about, I don't have nowhere to go. So the first thing I'm going to go is, let me go get high, mm-hmm. right? To kind of self-medicate myself and not have to deal with that uh, situation. And we're like, no, you don't have to go do that. If you need home, a home, a place to stay, whether it's one day, whether it's a week, we have a house for you. And so we let them know right away. Once they tell us that they're homeless, we start having that conversation and we're like, listen, we have a place for you to go. Uh, You don't have to worry about Let's worry more about getting you on our program, getting you on the medication, getting you ready, so that when it's time for you to leave, don't worry, we have a home. And so we take them over, and the the star says to me, I had to have the conversation with them, and said, listen, today you're seeing me in this uniform, right? But don't think that you're incarcerated. It's just that this is my uniform that I have every single day. But my job is to drive you to the house. Mm -hmm. But at any time, you can leave. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's been successful because individuals work with our case manager to find more permanent housing. Uh, They also work with the case manager for employment. They work with the case manager to make sure they stay on their uh, treatment program. And so for us, it's been very successful in allowing the people that go to the house to have an opportunity to continue on their program without the fear of not having somewhere to stay. So the people who take advantage of that program, um, first let me back up. In terms of the number of people who come in, what percentage of them do you think are homeless or is homeless? I don't have that number, but I can get you that number because uh, when we did a survey of uh, our jail management system, we found that at that time we had over 900 individuals here in the correctional facility and about 67 identified as homeless. Mm -hmm. Right. And that number went down, it goes up, depending on the self-identification of the person. Uh, Sometimes they say, I am homeless, and they're truly homeless, and sometimes they say, well, I just don't have a place to stay tonight, but if you give me some time, I can't find a place. Uh, So just working with them. So when somebody is homeless and it's time for them to be released, 
before you got the house, would you just let them out in the community? Like when you, cause in my mind, I, I have a gap. So I'm getting released. I'm homeless. Do I get any money? Am I temporarily put in a hotel somewhere? Like what happens? So what happens is, or what was happening is, uh, we work with county agencies mm-hmm. to try to find a hotel or a shelter bed for the person. To, because our goal is not to just open the door and say, thank you very much, see you. Uh, no, that's not our goal. Our goal is to provide a safe environment. And so working with our shelters, working with uh, our homeless division for Camden County uh, to put you somewhere. Mm-hmm. But... The reality is that uh, a lot of the population have gone to shelters and they don't particularly care for them for various reasons. Mm -hmm. And uh, they don't feel safe. And I get that. But um, for us, it was finding a way that we can address the homelessness situation and at the same time keep the individuals on a program. Some houses do not allow people that have medication-assisted treatment to be in the house. Mm-hmm. Sometimes uh, some shelters don't allow or are hesitant to deal with individuals with mental illness. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, ha- we had a, a gentleman that had has mental illness, and I we took him to the shelter, and he, the lights were too much for him. Mm. The the noise was too much, and he was like, "No, I can't. I can't do this." Mm. And so we were like, "Okay." So we try to find a, an, an alternative. But if he had the house, he has somewhere to go. He has somewhere to go, mm-hmm. and that gives us time. Mm-hmm. So for us, time is is essential because it gives us the opportunity to find resources for the person. And having the house, now we don't have to worry about rushing because at times I don't know when the person is leaving. Mm-hmm. So today you go to court and I think, okay, maybe next month they'll get sentenced or, or you can go to court and take a plea today and be released. Mm-hmm. And so we're like, oh, okay, so let's now we start working and now we're rushing. But now we don't have to rush because if you're homeless, stay at the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can leave whenever you want, but stay at the house and then give us a little bit of time. And with time, we're able to offer more services. So you were saying that they would work with your case manager. So when they do that, do they come back to the actual jail here for Ooh. like medically assisted medication or do they get everything at the house? They get everything at the house. Okay. You are no longer incarcerated. So we embedded a case manager at the house. Okay. Uh, you're not incarcerated. You can leave at any time. You don't have to take our resources. We have some individuals that have utilized the house for a, a couple days. We have some individuals that have used the house for three months Okay. Uh, because we understand there's different needs and it's not... Um, it's individualized and the person is work as long as you're working with the case manager because it's not for you to be there forever and ever you know it's a temporary accommodation until we could find a permanent solution to your house uh, housing and so the case manager will work with the person making sure you're looking for permanent housing making sure that you're looking for employment and when we get that person that just thinks that you know we have one that just thought oh, i'm just gonna stay in the house we're like Mm-mm, that's not how this works that's not how it works you got to work with the case manager and this is temporary housing mm-hmm. and you got to make the effort. And when he realized that, okay, I got to make the effort, he started making the effort and he was able to find employment. And once he found employment, he went and said, you know what? I got my place. Okay, great. Terrific. And uh, we make sure it's near a bus route. We work with, um, our sustainability for Camden County, and they donated a couple of bicycles. So there's a couple of bicycles because if people uh, have to take the bus, great. But if they have a little farther to go from the bus route, there's a bike, and they offered us uh, a couple of bikes, and we put them in the house, and we tell the, the the participants that you know if you need a bike when you leave, just let us know. We'll, you will let either let you take one of the bikes or get another one from sustainability, but just let us know. Mm -hmm. And so we keep certain bikes there just for that purpose so they can utilize it around the area and have some type of transportation. Uh, Additionally, the house has a a safe 
a medica- a medication safe for those individuals that are medications and their medication is uh, secured and they have access to it, but no one else. So uh, it allows them to keep their medication in a safe environment and be able to utilize it as they need it. So, so far, I think what I've heard you say is that addiction and homelessness are two of your major issues. If you had to say that there was a trinity that keeps people in a cycle, what would you say that third thing is? Mental health. Mental health. Yeah. So many individuals for many, many reasons either have a co-occurring condition of mental health illness and also addiction. And sometimes their mental illness is managed through addiction. addiction. Okay. And sometimes trauma that has not been dealt with triggers addiction so there's a lot yeah so that to me is the trinity uh dealing with individuals that have co-occurring conditions individuals that are homeless individuals that maybe are just even now we're seeing more and more little and you know i hope that we can find a way to uh, curtail individuals on the spectrum coming in because it's not necessarily this is not a place for an individual with in the autism spectrum. So finding ways to divert individuals, that's what we need to focus on. Individuals with mental illness do not need to be incarcerated. If we can get them the assistance that they need prior to a situation, be able to de-escalate the situation, my hope is that those individuals don't come here. A, a very compassionate perspective on how you deal with inmates. Where did that come from? Is it just kind of who you are, how you were raised? Like, where do you think that come from? I think it's, I have a, a strong belief in God. And I believe that he has put each and every one of us here for a purpose. And that is to help each other. And my job every single day is to see how I can help another person. And sometimes he has given me this opportunity and this platform to do so. A friend of mine once told me, because I was like, you know, we're getting all this money through grant money and this money and this money. And all of a sudden, you know, the opiate epidemic didn't just start. We've been seeing it before, right, in um, our communities. It didn't just start. And he said to me something, and, and I remember that. And I said, uh, he said, take the money and run. Mm-hmm. And I said, what do you mean take the money? He said, okay, prior to the money being available for medication-assisted treatment, you understood that there was a need, but there was no money. Now, all of a sudden, it's an epidemic. Take the money and run. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, good. So mm-hmm. I took the money and I ran. And I created programs for our population here in, in the city of Camden. And so the population that is here is predominantly black and brown. Mm-hmm. And so those programs are helping our community. Individuals that are coming from the city, individuals that are coming throughout Camden County. And so for me, is equitable services for everyone mm-hmm. so we opened it and so he said to me just take the money and run do whatever you want with it mm-hmm. don't worry about the past yeah in the past you knew that there there was an opiate epidemic mm-hmm. uh, people were on heroin and people were now it's fentanyl take the money and run and, run. and mm-hmm. i'm like you're right so we took the money and we ran and we created the programs that right now are benefiting our population and so the population is here in the in the facility uh yesterday when the white house was here they were able to see a female representative uh on our program they were able to see a african-american a latino young man and also a caucasian young man so you see the gamut of Mm -hmm. the fact that we are very diverse even within our program and we're helping all those communities in camden county so for us that is, you know, why we do what we do. Compassion, empathy, all those things are, if we are not here to provide a service, that's what we, you know, and I think that's where we kind of lose a lot of the community. We are in law enforcement supposed to be the guardians of people, not oppressing people. And so for me is to help people. That's what that's what we do. Uh, most law enforcement individuals are there to help. When everyone is running away, we're running towards, right? And we're there to help. And so I've taken that oath very serious. 
Mm -hmm. I am here for a service, mm -hmm. to offer a service to the population of Camden County. Mm -hmm. And if I could offer that also beyond, absolutely I would do so. Uh, so we hope that nationwide, what was heard and what was discussed yesterday will impact all correctional facilities nationwide because the utilization of Medicaid in correctional settings is gonna be a game changer because it will allow one, county taxpayers not to be burdened with the cost of uh, sustaining these programs. We will be able to recoup some of that money back because a lot of the, our population is on Medicaid. Mm -hmm. And so we hope that we can then recoup some of that money back and put it into services where, well, as we always said, the medication, that's the easy part. We can give you the medication. I can get medication and offer medication. The hard part is keeping you on the program. The hard part is making sure we have a case manager, making sure that you offer the services that you need, that it's a holistic, well-rounded program so that I'm not just taking medication, but I'm being counseled. There's therapy available. There is a case manager. There's links to community programs that there's follow up, that there's a, a navigator who's working with me to make sure that I stay on track. And if there is a problem, because it happens, it happens. Mm -hmm. we, we fall off the wagon, right? Pick them up, get back on. Yeah, you know what? You made a mistake. It happens. But that doesn't mean that's the end. Let's keep going. Uh, get yourself back on the program and let's keep moving. And so for us, it's not just about the medication. It's about the holistic approach to everyone. And for me, that is providing services. I'm here and this is a service-oriented job. That's what I get paid for. And that's why I try to do the best that I can in offering the services to people. Do you think that perspective that this job is about service is widely shared across corrections? No, because the, the reality is that while some of my colleagues do do what, um, believe that this is a service-oriented field, there is that also group that feels that I'm here to make sure that the person gets punished, right? And the reality is that, no, you're not. The punish, as I said from the get-go, is the fact that I took away your liberty. Mm -hmm. The punishment is not for me to create more punishment since you're here. Uh, so but what I'm seeing, though, is change. It's change in that old philosophy that as we get new correctional officers, individuals that deal with their friends being uh, either having mental illness, their friends having some type of addiction, uh, individuals that they deal with that maybe are homeless, that there is that empathy and there is that change. And so you're seeing a big change in corrections where we are now becoming more of uh, what Society always told us, you know, we're the social worker, we're the case manager, we're the teacher. Yeah, you know what? We are doing those things. Mm -hmm. But for me, that becomes a opportunity for that correction officer to be a, a, a agent of change. And when you give people purpose, I think that they do a lot more. That's and so if we can continue encouraging our young staff to do that, they see themselves as having a purpose. And when you give them a purpose they'll rise to it. You know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that data in terms of employee motivation talks about, um, I, I refer to them as the four Ps, play. And what they mean by that is you are given the freedom to figure out how to do your job mm -hmm. um, without being micromanaged as well as to do it creatively. And the second P is purpose. Um, and then the other has to do with pay and a couple other things. But purpose is way at the top. If you can give people a sense of connection, they tend to do um, a lot more perhaps than you think they can. And speaking of that sense of purpose, um, how do you go about building healthy and strong teams here? <laughs> it's tough because um, we have, we're multi-generational, right? We have the young man at the door that is leaving in, you know, six months, right? Mm -hmm. And then we have that young guy that just graduated from high school and is here. And yes, how does that work? So it's, it's difficult because communication is important. Mm -hmm. uh, how does a young person communicate with someone that's 25 years 
you know, older than they are and who has been here and is ready to leave. And young man, you don't understand. This is the way we did it. Mm -hmm. And the young man's like, well, we don't have to do it that way. We can do it this way. And it's better. Right. So those communication challenges. But uh, I always <laughs> told it, it, no, and I always tell our our uh, our upper manager and I said, listen, guys encourage don't get frustrated by the millennials don't get the generation x's and all that don't get frustrated encourage them they're the technology people they're the ones that are going to get you done all this stuff that you need done but if you don't encourage them to do it and you don't encourage them to become part of the team i don't want to hear that you're frustrated with them right because for a while, and we had to teach our, our, our staff, look, we have generations, we have baby boomers, we had Gen X's, millennials, uh, and we're all in different stages in our life. And just having the opportunity to be able to connect with them, right? And that, for me, was critical. I, had to, I cannot discourage they, I will hear my staff, they don't listen, they don't do this, they don't do that. And I'm like, well, it's because you're not challenging them. Give them a purpose. Mm -hmm. You know all this technology, I personally don't know it, but they do, mm -hmm. right? So let's figure a way that we can encourage them, make them part of the team by using what they like, which is technology, right? So in, increasing how we... Uh, we do all this. Let's work with emails. Now, our older guys had a hard time when we went to our policies and procedures digitally, right? Mm -hmm. They had a hard time. And I said, but the young guys, they were in there. They're like, oh, this is easy. Now I don't have to get a piece of paper and forget where it's at. I can go look in the system, find the policy, put a word, and it looks up the policy or mm -hmm. it looks up a specific thing that I'm looking for. So they, they were encouraged by it and they utilized it. Our more mature staff, they had difficulties with it, right? And so we're like, have the young people teach them. And if you teach them, they feel like they're doing something to help the other. And so it's a balance. It's, it's difficult, but it is, it's manageable. When you bring in new people, why do they say they come here when you ask them what makes you want to do this job? A lot of them feel that they're in the criminal justice field and feel that this is an opportunity. Uh, sometimes they see it and I tell them, and I'm honest with them, this might be a stepping stone. Which is okay. This might be a stepping stone into the FBI. It might be a stepping stone into Camden Metro or the Sheriff Department because they will take our staff. And the reason they take our staff is because they're well trained. They understand what they have to do. They have the ability to articulate and have conversation and de-escalate. All those skills are necessary in law enforcement. And so they would rather you come here, do a couple years, three years, and when it's time for them to hire, they'll look and see who's here. And if you're on their list and also on this list, because we're civil service, this is an opportunity for you to get a job there. And so uh, this might be just that, an opportunity for something bigger. We have guys that uh, came here, have gone on to Lindenwall and Saucon, Cherry Hill Police Departments. And the, the chiefs will tell us, I'd rather get the guys from corrections because they understand the, the work that needs to be done. They have the, being in, in the facility, they don't have a gun. They have to, their gun is their mouth. They have to be able to articulate to someone and tell them what you they want them to do. And that's it. There you go. And so it allows them the opportunity to interact with people that they never probably would have interacted if they live in wherever they live. But working in here, they have to interact with people of color, people of uh, different ethnicities, of different backgrounds. And so it gives them the opportunity to have that dialogue and understanding. So then transfer that into the community, 
that person is going to be like, whoa, let me talk to this person. I know this person from maybe when I worked at the jail. And that has happened. And they're able to de-escalate situations and be able to have that dialogue before it escalates to something else. How do you sell working here? Because one of the things that I've seen in so many newspapers and things that I read, that law enforcement, but corrections in particular, is hurting for staff. So what's the problem? Because as you said before, the pay is competitive for the tri-state area. You get great skills to go into other areas if that's what you want to do. Why is it so hard to get people to come here? I think it's the negativity associated with incarceration. I think that no one, I didn't get up 26 years ago and say, oh, you know what? I want to be a correctional officer. That that was the last thing on my mind. Yes, today. However, however, when I, I got here and I started working and I saw that there was opportunity and there was advancement, when I started, none of the captains, no, maybe one captain was a female. One. That's it. And the rest, the other six or seven were all males, right? But I saw that, okay, there's, a, there's an opportunity to be a captain and there was an opportunity to be a lieutenant. And so those were my goals. And so I think the way we sell it to people is come. There's an opportunity. You're going to get paid very well. However, you're also going to be on a 12-hour shift, which allows you to spend more time with your family because you're half of the year, you're off, right? There's great benefits. There's opportunities to advance if you want to be a sergeant. I mean, I just had a guy that I promoted to lieutenant and young man has a great test taker, he has great skills, and he is under 35 years old, and he's a lieutenant. And he is going to, he's the future of this department. And so I tell him that, you wanna make change? Then this is how you do it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't make change as a sergeant. Mm-hmm. I could affect some of the change, but I couldn't make the change mm-hmm. until I got into the upper management whether it's lieutenant, captain, deputy warden, and then warden, then you can make a change. Then you all those things that you tell me that you want to change, that's when you do it. But you can't get there if you don't stay. If you don't stay. If you don't make it part of your, uh, as a career. And also look at it as that. It's not a job. It's a career. Yes, it's a negative aspect to corrections because at times, some of the people that are here can be very difficult. Mm-hmm. But... If you look at the job as a career, then it changes your perspective. Mm -hmm. And I always tell them, have something else to do besides this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Have a a hobby. Do something. Mm -hmm. Spend time with your family. Travel. Do whatever you need to do. Because it can't consume you. Mm -hmm. Because you will see some of the worst things that could happen to individuals. When individuals are mentally ill, they will do things that you normally wouldn't think that they would do. Um, you will also potentially hear that an individual that is incarcerated is here for a very serious offense. That is why we tell our staff, don't look at their charges. It's best not to. That way you treat everybody the same. Because there is bias. Once you start looking at, oh, well, this person did this, and, you know, and, Keep, don't worry about that. Your job is to make sure that the person who is entrusted to your care goes either home mm-hmm. safely or goes to state prison the same way that they came in. Mm-hmm. Not Nothing more, nothing less, but the same way. And so our job is to try to get them to that. So in selling the job, I sell it from the perspective of in the next five years, you can be an agent of change. You could be a person who could be on our SOG team, who could be on our canine team, who could be on our intelligence team. But it's up to you. Mm-hmm. I can't do those things. You have to want it for yourself. Mm-hmm. And so there's opportunities. I have an internal affairs unit. I have an academy down in Lakeland. We run a juvenile detention center. We run a, a, a children's uh, shelter. There's opportunity. It's what you make of it. Mm-hmm. I have people working here in administration who work as H in HR. I have some, some officers, sergeant, lieutenants, work in HR. 
So they do FMLA, they deal with uh, IOD, they deal with all those HR components. Then I have an individual who's doing hiring and just hired her to focus just on hiring because the reality is people don't know what we do. And since they don't know what we do, they just think that is what is shown on TV. And so they think, oh, oh, that's terrible. I don't want to work there. But the reality, that's not what it is. It's um, what happens here is an opportunity to help people to change their lives. And so if they see it from that perspective and the young lady goes and, and demonstrates, look, there's more to it than that. Uh, yes, there's some bad days. And yes, you're going to deal with some of uh, society's most difficult individuals. But there's also opportunity to help people change their lives. And if you can help people change their lives, you're changing your life and you are creating change. And so for us, is that selling that aspect. And I think people don't know what we do. I think you're right because I think most people would never think about the different jobs within this system, if you will. I think they see it as... Ah, this is a horrible way to put it, but I'm thinking. I walk around with a little baton hitting people in the head. Yes, right. And the reality yes. is that it's not what I do every day. Absolutely. No, I walk the hallways. I, uh, you know, talk to the inmate population. Uh, they say to me, "Well, can we, uh, can we do a book club?" All right, what book do you want? Those are the conversations I'm having. I'm not having those conversations about, you know, I'm pillaging or, you know, creating havoc in the community. No, it's about, you know, what can we do? Can I get a job? Right? I'll walk the hallways and, hey, Warden, can I work in the kitchen? And the first thing I'm like, okay, what type of charges do you have? Uh, what's, uh, what classification are you? Can you get down to the kitchen? And if I can't get you to the kitchen, can you work another job? And can we do those things? And because the reality is we have a facility and we'd like to keep it clean. So I need painters. I need electricians. I need So individuals that have those resources and those skills are the individuals that we're utilizing to maintain our facility. And so, you know, we have a dog program that we uh, kind of stopped during the pandemic, but the free, the commissioner's on my case, and he's like, you got to get started because it's a great program where we certify dogs from the shelter to become certified companion dogs for veterans. Mm -hmm. And the inmate population uh, trains the dogs. So we work with a vendor who comes in and certifies the dogs and gives those skills to the population. And I could tell you that those individuals that have participated in that program don't come back to jail, mm -hmm. right? They have these skills and now, so one guy says to me, I want to become a dog groomer. Okay, great. When you leave, go get those skills and, and I'm sure you will be a wonderful dog groomer. And with the vendor that we work with, they connect it and be able to have those connections in the community. And so those are the programs that we talk about, not necessarily what you see on TV and the media uh, of what's happening. And yes, some individuals here, because of what they've done, they do need to be here. Uh, but our job is to get them to where they're going, which is state prison, and they'll do their time there. But that is the punishment, the mm -hmm. loss of their freedom and liberty, right? It's not anything else after. Yeah, you don't need to add to it. Exactly. Now, as we talk about what it means to get people here to build teams and to make this a healthy environment, I'm curious about you in particular. When I think women in corrections, my first thought, and this is one of the questions I'd like you to answer too, I'm thinking woman in a male-dominated environment, how does she start off not even having corrections on her radar? and become warden. So if you would, indulge me for a few moments. Tell me about your experience. How do you think your rise to the top perhaps was impacted by gender? And um, then my other question that I want to add to that is, how do you think corrections would be different if it were female dominated? <laughs> wow. So the first part is I had great mentors. And when I say mentors, they were men, right? Because you're right, back when I started back in 1997, the majority of captains, lieutenants, the warden, they were all men. Uh, but along the way, I was able to make great connections with those male officers who always encouraged me and said, yes, this is a male-dominated field. However, there's opportunity. And I could tell you that in corrections, 
for law enforcement, corrections is probably the best opportunity for a woman to move forward because it's we hire men and women and they're able to take a test and if you take that test and you score higher than a male you have the opportunity to advance and in a lot of law enforcement in the past that wasn't an opportunity Mm -hmm. you were selected because the chief selected whoever he selected Mm -hmm. and so it was not civil service driven and individuals weren't given the opportunity so women may have had the skills but they weren't selected where in corrections you took a test if you score better than the person, you had to, you got, got the opportunity job. and you got the job and you move forward. And I remember when we started, like I said, we didn't have that many captains. And then all of a sudden, in uh, 20 years later, 22 years later, all the f- captains were female. Why? Because in 1997, when they were all hired, now here we are 25 years later, those same women are now captains, DWs, warden, mm-hmm. right? But that wouldn't have happened if we weren't given the opportunity to take the test. Let me take that test. If you let me take the test, I will show you that I belong. And so in corrections, that's one of the advantages that come. And we tell that to the female staff. They come in. You have the opportunity, just like a male officer, if you score well, you have good evaluations, and you have the ambition, you can do the work. Uh, We will train you, we will teach you, we will give you the skills that you need. So I think that that's a benefit and we try to sell that to the staff when they come in. Mm -hmm. Whether you're male or female, if you can do well on the test, if you can show that you have the skills to lead, if you can show us that you have the ambition, we will make sure that you get promoted. And so we kind of promote, we have over 40 sergeants, uh, 14 lieutenants, four captains, one deputy warden. So there's the opportunity for advancement. And as these individuals have retired within the last year, year and a half, which is why we have vacancies, then those younger people are advancing a lot faster. Case in point, the, the lieutenant I was talking about, he was able to promote to a sergeant and went from step six of a officer to a sergeant, which was almost a $50,000 jump. Mm-hmm. And he did it like that. And so I say to him, great for you. Mm-hmm. And he took he, within a year, he was able to take the, all you have to do is do one year in title. He was able to take, take the test. test to be a lieutenant. And within two years, he's now a lieutenant. And so the advancement is up to him. And that's why it's worked so great within corrections and people have opportunities. So for me, I just came in at the right time. The test came at the right time and I took those tests and I took advantage. Listen to my elders. Absolutely. You know, a couple of senior sergeants told me when you take the test, don't think about the test as Camden County. It's a test that is given throughout the state. So don't focus on how we do things in Camden County. And, and I listened to that and great advice. So when I went and, and uh, took the test, it was don't focus in Camden County. This is a state facility, a state test, and uh, just oversee it that way. And I was able to score well. And every year that the test was available and those opportunities, I moved up and given those opportunities. Did you ever being in the jail were you ever just fearful um simply because you thought perhaps some of the incarcerated folks here um would target you more or women more in general did you ever worry about your safety in that sense fear is a good thing okay. uh, it keeps you on your toes so you have to if you tell me that you're not fearful and working in a correctional setting then you're lying because the reality is Every single day you walk into the housing areas, you do not have a gun. You don't have uh, all these you know, tools that you could utilize in the outside. But you have the greatest tool, which is your mouth mm-hmm. and your intelligence. And people who have done serious offenses, they're the first to tell you I made a mistake sometimes, right? And 
Fear is a good thing. You you have to have a little bit of it because if you don't, then you think you're invincible and then you fall into that trap. Uh, I think respect, command presence is, is probably the way that I go. And I always tell our academy staff, I need people to have command presence. What is that? Then when you walk into the room, people know that you're in charge. Then when you walk into the room, I don't have to open my mouth, but you know that I'm in charge. Mm. Then when you walk into that housing area, I don't have to raise my voice. I don't raise my voice. I don't have to do that. Paint a picture for me, because when I'm thinking command presence, does that mean as you are projecting that you are... I'm thinking... In authority. Not just authority, but what I'm thinking... Okay, so I'll just be blunt. I was trying not to say this. I'm just thinking like with some of the women I know who've worked in corrections, some of them seem to have taken on this demeanor that's really hardened. And I'm like, you're harder than some of the guys I know. So when you say command presence, I don't think you mean that. No. So tell me what you mean. What I mean is when I walk in, like yesterday, we were at this... uh, press conference I was in my dress whites sharp ironed everything where it needed to be the the brass shiny it looked good right good I look good so that's command presence so when I walk into a housing area and they see me dressed the way I, I don't have to say a word they know that I'm in charge when I walk into a housing area in this uniform right it said ironed. It said clean. It said, do I walk with my head down or do I walk with a nice straight back and like, good morning, gentlemen, good morning, ladies, or what it, it's that to me is command presence. Uh, or do I walk in timid, mm-hmm. not thinking, oh, I, I know what I'm doing. That for me is command presence. I don't have to be tough. That's not what I'm asking for. No. What I'm asking for in our staff is that you show uh, that you have, um, you're assured in yourself that you're confident. Mm. I want you to show the confidence when you walk in. You might not know anything because we're going to teach you that. Mm-hmm. But confidence that the population doesn't know that, right? We're going to teach you how to be a correction officer. But when you walk in there, I don't want you to be timid. Mm -hmm. I want you to walk in and show that, you know, today, ladies and gentlemen, I'm in charge. Indeed. And this is how we're going to do it. And this is how we're going to do it. And here's my list of what we need to accomplish today. And today, I need to make sure we get laundry done. So, Ladies and gentlemen, get your laundry together, do what you got to do. And at such and such time, we're starting Mm -hmm. and get it done. That's command presence rather than the inmate population telling you how to do your job. And it doesn't mean that you have to be tough and rough and disorganized. It means that you're very strict to the point you give people the opportunity to know exactly what your expectations are and what you want done. Okay. And we can still have a good time and get it done. Okay. Listen, we got. I get that we the football game is coming on, so we know that we got to get the. You guys want to sit down and watch the football game, and we got to serve chow. We got to do this. Who got? Who has to go to court? Listen, we can't be late for court. So you guys, here's your. Uh, your documents, everything that you need. Do you need a new jumpsuit? Here's your razor. You know what time you got to get up. You're an adult. You know, treat them as that with respect and you get a lot more done. Mm-hmm. You know, there's times where I want to do a GI and I'm like, listen, this place looks not well. What's a GI? General inspection. I want it clean and it just looks terrible. And I, you got to tell people, this looks terrible. Mm-hmm. And let them know this is what you want. So I want the housing areas a mop clean. I need this uh, dusted. I need this painted. And you know what? They'll do it. You know Why? This because this is where I'm living for the next six months. And I want it clean. This sounds a lot like performance management. <laughs> when you're trying to clearly make sure an employee understands what's expected. Right. A lot like that. So... For me, the MA population, in a way, they need to understand what you expect of them. Mm -hmm. And so, listen, I have sat in in meetings with young people and they're like, 
you've put me on restriction. And I'm like, yes, I have because of your behavior. Mm-hmm. But if you could show me and demonstrate to me that that behavior has changed, I will give you an opportunity. And the classification people will say, you have to write to the warden. You have to write. And the people won't. Mm-hmm. And finally, when they do write, it might be a couple months later. And they're like, I can't take this restriction anymore. Can you come talk to me? No, you know what? I'll go up and talk to them. But you have to show me that. And I had the conversation with the young man. I said, young man, you cannot go around hitting people. We're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. You will be restricted in your movement. If that's the way you think you're going to behave. Mm-hmm. He's like, no, I learned my lesson. I said, okay, mm-hmm. then we'll give you an opportunity. Mm-hmm. But if you do that again, you know exactly what you're going to face. And he's like, 100%. I said, okay. As a woman here, have you ever experienced harassment? How do you deal with it? I haven't experienced harassment Um in what I think harassment is, right? That vile way that people deal with uh, an op- the opposite gender. Because um, I yeah, that as well as, I wouldn't even say that vile way, and then sometimes just dismissing you because you're a woman too. That, yes. Okay. Um, I believe that sometimes you're dismissed not necessarily because you don't know what's going on, but simply because of your gender. Mm-hmm. Yes. But I think that we've come a long way and sometimes you have to be a little aggressive mm-hmm. and let people know that you belong. Mm-hmm. And you do it through your actions. And I think sometimes that is probably one of the hardest things as a woman because you feel like I know that I'm worthy and I know that I belong. But sometimes men may say things or dismiss your ideas, not because they're not good ideas, but simply because you're a woman. Mm -hmm. That has happened. But I think that you got to keep going. You got to keep push, push through it and let people know that you do belong, that you do have good ideas. Uh, I don't know everything, so I'm not cocky about it, but be able to say to people, listen, I know that this works. Let's try it and move forward. But no, absolutely, that, that has happened. Um, one woman said to me, and, and I learned from it, and I'm like, you know, she has a point. She said, Karen, we tend to not be our cheerleaders. We cheer for everyone else, and we cheer for, and we applaud everyone else. But we never applaud for ourselves, and we never cheer for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, what are you talking about? She says, you need to once in a while send an email to our bosses about something you did. Toot your horn. You got to toot your own horn. Sometimes, he said, because other men, they do it. She said, because I see it. I see other men saying, hey, boss, I did this, this. Here's a couple pictures of the things that we did, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't have to tell my boss what I did. They know. And she's like, no, they don't. Sometimes they don't. Mm. And advice, actually. And it was great advice. And she said to me, I'm telling you this. Because in the position that I am now, I wish someone had told me that a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Because we tend to be meek and and not want to be confrontational and not toot our own horn that we don't do those things. But I will tell you that your male counterparts are doing it all the time. Mm -hmm. Letting our bosses know, Mm -hmm. our boss, of what they've done. Not in a negative way, but just a very, here, by the way, this is what I did. Mm-hmm. And so I took the advice and I went upstairs, I took a couple pictures and I wrote my little email and I said, boss, uh, we finally finished uh, uh, during the COVID situation. We needed to add a couple of uh, video court booths 
and we did the work here and I took up pictures and I said, we did it. This is what we did, blah, blah, blah. We added 10 more courtrooms to the facility and just send it up. And my boss said, it's oh, a great job, blah, blah, blah. But she was right. She was absolutely right. We had a situation where we went out to the community and cleaned a uh, homeless encampment, right? And our guys went out there and did all the cleaning. And they sent me some pictures. I sent them back to my boss. I said, by the way, you know, this is what was done and this is what they did. And I took that advice and she's right. We don't do that enough. Mm -hmm. And so if I had to tell a woman a great advice that I got from another woman, that would be it. Toot your horn. Because men do it all the time. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with it. But we as women, we tend to not do that. Mm -hmm. And we have to toot our own horn. Mm -hmm. We toot everyone else. Oh, congratulations to, you know, you did this or great job on that. But we don't do that enough for ourselves. I hear you. I hear you. And I think that that was amazing advice that she gave me. How would the culture of corrections be different if it were female dominated? I think it would be focused more on support systems and uh, services to the population because we tend to understand uh, that there is a lot of trauma in people. We empathize with people. We tend to understand that people are broken. Sometimes people are hurt. And we we want to fix that and we want to help people. So I think if more women, and, and you're starting to see it more and more as women in corrections come into uh, being the manager of the institution, how more programming is incorporated. Mm-hmm. There's no, I could tell you that yesterday the White House coming here was not a fluke. Mm-hmm. They came here because they know that our program is the best. Mm-hmm. And this morning, a couple of my colleagues, male, are all saying congratulations, right? And I'm saying to them when we have a meeting is, you guys can do this too. Mm-hmm. This funding that is coming allows us, there is no excuse mm-hmm. why we cannot offer these programs to the vulnerable population when you know you're getting refunded via Medicaid. Mm-hmm. There's no excuse. Because before it's, oh, it's so much money. Well, you know what? That's not an excuse anymore. It's mm-hmm. for us to get the work done. And I think that I just, I was speaking with a, a colleague in Hudson County, and he hired a female warden director. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a good thing. Mm-hmm because he's going to be able to make sure that that institution has a, a woman who has great experience, came from Rikers Island, has over 20 plus years experience, but that also comes with the resources and the opportunity to offer programming. There's, United States is probably the only country that does corrections the way we do. Interesting observation. The Swedish model, it's different. Mm -hmm. If you ever get to um, look at the Denmark model and the Swedish model, they do corrections more as they understand that individuals commit crime. But incarceration is different. It's more holistic. Mm -hmm. Um, And Pennsylvania is starting, if you get an opportunity, it's one of their facilities has this, I think it's the Denmark model, where the correctional officers and the incarcerated population live in a commune sense. Mm. They eat lunch together, they eat dinner together. Because what this, the model is, is that yes, the person is incarcerated, their liberty is taken, but what we don't want to do is create an inhumane person. And so therefore, let's have lunch together, let's eat dinner at, at dinner time together in a, in a setting at, at a table, not in a lunchroom. Uh, let's work together in creating our meal today of what we're going to eat. And so then the officer feels part of correcting the behavior. And in correcting the behavior, the person feels like when I return to my community, I'm still part of the community. After my conversation with Warden Taylor, I called the Secretary of Corrections for the state of Pennsylvania, Laurel Harry, 
She is also included in this podcast series, by the way. I asked Secretary Harry, what is the Denmark model and why did Pennsylvania decide to try it? Here's her answer. Actually, we did have some staff that went to Denmark to, and traveled there and wanted to learn more about their system, and I know at least toward one facility. But they also subsequently went to both Norway and Sweden to see their systems. And in turn, both Norway and Sweden have come to Pennsylvania to, uh, we kind of developed a, a partnership and to really learn about our system and what parts of their system we could incorporate into ours. And we've been doing some work with Drexel University. This was all kind of stemmed through a partnership between all of us. And the Scandinavian model in general is about normalcy and a more human-centered approach or more humane treatment of the incarcerated population in th those countries. So we wanted to adopt a, uh, a model, so to speak, here in Pennsylvania just to see what that would look like in our agency. So we're currently doing a pilot program, and it will run through the end of 2024. And COVID certainly put a, a damper on uh, the full implementation of this. So we've had to kind of extend the pilot. But what, they, what the housing unit looks like is there's like regular furniture. They have a kitchenette where they can make meals. They can eat together. They can eat with staff if they'd like. They have a laundry facility, facilities on the unit, fish tank. So it looks different. When you walk on that unit, it looks a lot uh, a lot different than a regular housing unit. And I think what they're trying to measure is morale and stress and well-being of the officers. Is it a less stressful environment when you walk into uh, this type of setting? Uh, do the inmates feel safer? Do they get less misconducts? Do they behave more when they're on this type of a unit? Uh, do they have a more positive or feel like they have a more positive relationship with staff? So those were all kinds of things that uh, we're looking at and certainly doing at SCI Chester. But I, I would argue that I think this happens every day. Components of this model happen happen every day in the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections. I used to get request slips from inmates that would say, hey, officer so-and-so pulled me aside, he heard my mother died, and he spent an hour with me, or, or whatever the time period was, and just really grateful for those significant interactions. So I do believe we have those components all occurring all over, but what we did was kind of put this all on a housing unit, kind of measure some outcomes to say, what does this look like? Um, is this something that we can replicate somewhere across our system in a, in a different setting. But yeah, that's where we're at. And we're excited to see what the, uh, the pilot shows. Now, back to our regularly scheduled program. You know, it's interesting you say that. Recently, it was listening to a clip on NPR. A gentleman was, I believe, in, I know he was in Angola, and I think he was in solitary confinement for almost 40 years. Just imagine what that does to your mind. And you, you, you let that person out. What are you letting out, so to speak? I, I, I often think about how that kind of experience impacts people. Um, I, had, I had a young man that uh, works with us now, and he, if um, you ever want to meet someone who is he can give you a different perspective from incarceration is him. Uh, he is currently working at Rutgers on his, uh, on his doctorate, but he was incarcerated at the young age of 16 and did 30 years. Right. And he did a lot of it in solitary because when you're young like that, uh, there's a lot of rules and regulations regarding access to a juvenile in a prison setting, adult setting. And I guess back then, the best way they thought was, let's keep them isolated. And he said that did so much damage mm -hmm. because um, he was isolated for a long time. I can see that. And he said to me when I got home, he's like, I, I couldn't sleep with, I needed to sleep with the lights on because in a cell, he slept with the lights on. I couldn't sleep in a large room. I needed something smaller because the cell space is so small that I felt overwhelmed in a room. Uh, those, uh, you know, those are the traumas there associated with incarceration. Yesterday, a young man came from the community to speak to uh, during our, our press conference. And there is trauma even in him coming back 
Right. So we're like, let's talk to him because he, they said to me, uh, we think he's a little bit uh, cautious, a little nervous about coming back. And I said, well, don't push it. If he doesn't want to come back, we're good. Uh, I don't want to impact more trauma on someone simply because we want him to be here. Uh, he did make it in uh, and we had those conversations and our team was able to have just have discussion with him about we understand what you're feeling is normal. Mm-hmm. People do have trauma in, I've been incarcerated, I left, and I don't want to go back to that place. Mm-hmm. And just walking in through the front, whether it's through the front gate or through the back, there is trauma in that. And so being able to tell him that it was okay, that he's okay to feel that way, mm-hmm. but he has overcome, that's also a, a good thing. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's difficult. Um, isolation is tough. When you leave here, however many years into the future that is, what do you think your legacy will be? Ooh, legacy. I don't think I have a legacy. Yes, you do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can name two, and I've only known you for a few minutes. (laughs) A friend of mine was saying to me that you should only stay at a job six to ten years. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's true, but because I've been here for 26, uh, (laughs) but in different in different roles. But at the end of the day, I, I want my legacy to be uh, the opportunity to, I guess I want my legacy to be that when given the opportunity, I took it. And I made something that is going to help our community as a whole. That's it. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not about the accolades. I'm not, that is not me. Uh, a lot of people think that I, minimize that but that's just not me i'm not a great public speaker i'm not that person that is going to be in the front front you know with that's not me me is uh what can i do to help you today that is going to let you go back to your community better than you were when you came in because if i could do that then i'm changing society because i'm helping society and for me that's what I want uh, people to understand that's a person with compassion that's a person who empathizes with people mm-hmm. and not just mental but empathizes with the fact that we all make mistakes and if I can learn from a mistake and it doesn't occur again then I'm a better person if you had to say there was one thing you would do differently here what would that be One thing that I would do differently. I don't think I would do anything different. I think that there's a reason why things happen the way they do. And through our struggles, through our our good times, I've learned from both. So I don't think I would change anything. Um, there's a purpose for everything. And sometimes, whether I like it or I don't, it's just an opportunity for me to make a change. And so uh, I wouldn't change anything. I think that what I would like is unlimited funds to do the things that I want to do, because there's so many things that I want to do. But I also am very cautious with the taxpayers' money, because at the end of the day, that's who I work for also. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And I'm very... Uh, prudent with that money, utilizing it to the best of our ability to ensure that it's going in the right places. But if I could just have a, a boatload of money, uh, there's a lot of things that I would do. But um, understanding that the taxpayers have to, they have, I have a responsibility to them and making sure that whatever we do, we spend it wisely. Here's my last question. It's the, the, the I call it the million dollar question. You mentioned earlier that some of the officers here work 12 hour shifts, um, that a lot of times they are um, seeing people who've done all sorts of things. And then you even talked about your interaction with the inmate population when you make the rounds in the building. So my question to you actually is, what do you do to make sure you don't um, 
encounter and deal with burnout. How do you take care of Warden Taylor? Well, um, understanding that I cannot change people is the main thing. And I tell the staff early, the only person that you can change is you. So realize that. Come to work with a good, positive attitude. So every day I come to work, I'm not angry, I'm not disgruntled. I come to work and I enjoy what I do. So enjoy it. Come to work, enjoy what you do. So I try to travel. I have a great opportunity to mentor young people in the community. So I have a, a church youth group and we go camping and, and the director's like, how can you go camping? I said, director, I remember when I was a kid and I was eight, 10 years old, 12 years old, and I used to go camping and I loved it, right? And now I have the opportunity to do the same for these kids kids that probably will never have gone camping and now they go camping and we, we just we uh last uh, summer we went to west virginia and uh had a week in west virginia in the mountains and that's how i relax giving back to other people uh understanding that for me and i and i spoke to you about this before i i believe in God, I believe in the fact that he has put me here for a purpose and there's a reason why he has given me this opportunity and he's given me this platform and he's given me this because I never thought this. I always thought a little bit smaller. I, you know, I'm like, if I make it to a lieutenant, that's great. That's all I want to do. And God had bigger plans for me. And now that he has given me this opportunity, I have to make the best of it. And so uh, for me, it's making sure that in my community, I, I changed that and the perspective. You know, I'm from Camden. I grew up here in the city. I went to school here in the city. Uh, I tell the young people that go to the high schools, if I could be the warden, so could you. Wilson Camden High. Wilson. No, right. Well, now it's East Side, <laughs> East Side High School. But yes, um, I, I went to Woodrow Wilson High School. I graduated class of 88. And you know what? I'm very thankful for that. And I came from the city. I understand the city. I want to make sure that, and when I say my community, that's my community that I'm providing for them. And this has given me the opportunity to do so. Something that I never thought that I could do. Indeed. Warden thank you so much for your time. Anytime. Thank you. This has um, been a great conversation. <laughs> great. It has been. <laughs> uh, I hope that it gives people the opportunity to see incarceration in a different perspective, not what you see on television, but actually what really happens in the field, which is us trying to help and make change. Indeed. I will say this. The one thing that I'm clear about, if nothing else, as a function of talking to you, is that corrections really should be about serving the people so that when they leave, they are better off than when they came. Absolutely. Indeed. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Leadership Drives podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe, share with your family and friends, and be sure to tune in to the next episode of the Leadership Drives.